0: From the Relationship Center, I'm psychotherapist, couples counselor, and dating coach, Jessica Engel, and this is I Love You Too, a show about how to create and sustain meaningful relationships.
1: I'm professional certified coach, Josh Van Vleet. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about how to develop secure attachment part two. We are so happy you're here, and please remember that this show is not a substitute for a relationship with a licensed mental health professional. Welcome, everybody, to part two of our two-part series all about how to develop secure attachment. If you missed part one, you may want to go back and listen to that. Uh, It was our last month's episode, so you can get caught up. And then we're going to dive right in with our conversation where we left off for part two.
0: Yes. And before we do get started, if you love our show, well, we love you too. And we want to be in touch between episodes. So to get more free dating, relationship and social anxiety advice, go to relationshipcenter.com newsletter to sign up for, you guessed it, our newsletter. Again, relationshipcenter.com newsletter. Okay, let's dive into part two.
1: Okay, well, shall we go on? We shall. So my other main point here is in addition to how does a securely attached person view themselves in relationships, what are the skills that you need to be a part of a secure functioning relationship? You're going to be learning that through the secure attachment priming, right? Taking on some of the viewpoints and the conclusions and the lenses of a secure functioning person will naturally produce some of the skill sets or some of the behaviors that uh, you need to be a part of a secure functioning relationship. And you, of course, because they're skills, you can practice these. You can deliberately learn and develop these skills. And so I've got a a very incomplete uh, list of things here. A couple things that I think are important skills that we'll touch on maybe just briefly uh, in this episode at least.
0: Yes, I love that. Did you say touch on or Uh,
1: cha-cha? Cha-cha with with (laughs) these different skills. I
0: like that. We're ready to touch
1: on. We'll touch on them. And uh, I think one of the most important ones, maybe we'll start with the most important one that I know we've talked about in the past is making good repair Mm -hmm. from moments of rupture, from moments of conflict, difficulty, disconnection, because those are normal In any relationship, you're going to have ruptures, you're going to have conflict, you're going to have places where you miss each other, someone does something, and it hurts the other person. And it's not the absence of those that indicates a secure functioning relationship. It's how do you repair from those moments. Mm -hmm. So if you had no other skills but that one, that would get you a long way towards secure functioning. And of course there's a lot of nuance that we could go into about how to do that well um and i think for the sake of our our time today we probably won't go super deep with that but i want to name it here because that is one of the skills that you can develop like how do i listen validate understand what my partner is experiencing how do i make a good apology right we don't get a lot of training on this Mm
0: -mm. we
1: don't get a lot of good examples of this we get a lot of fake apologies or insincere apologies or even sincere apologies that don't really land for the other person. And so how do we do that well? Yes. Uh, And how do we share what didn't work for us in a way that's effective and that invites the other person in versus pushing them away? Uh, All of these things that are really important for how do we do repair well?
0: Yes. Yes. I've got some interesting stats on rupture uh, in relationships. John Gottman estimates that partners are emotionally available. Guess how much of the time?
1: Well, I think I may have heard this stat before. Uh, It's it's something like 33% or something. That's
0: what I had remembered. I looked at it. It's 9%.
1: 9%?
0: So 33% I think may refer to responding to bids for connection. Okay. This is referring to being emotionally available 9% of the time.
1: Help me understand that stat a little more.
0: So it's basically John Gottman saying it's impossible to be emotionally available for your partner 100% of the time. Yeah. Both partners in a relationship are typically emotionally available only 9% of the time, mm-hmm. which leaves the other 91% of the time ripe for miscommunication. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, we have to be very, very good at repair.
1: Mm-hmm. Interesting.
0: Another interesting stat is that um, mothers or caregivers who failed to be responsive and available 50% of the time were still able to raise healthy adults.
1: So one out of every two times that your child is looking for connection, mother is not responsive or right. available, and they still can raise secure, securely attached kiddos.
0: Right. The difference between happy couples and unhappy couples is not that we don't make mistakes, it's that they're able to repair. Same with mother-child or parent-child, caregiver-child dyads. Mm -hmm. Okay, Rupture is extremely common. Mm -hmm. And so just like you're saying, the skills of repair are vital. Mm -hmm. That's where it's at. And I want to just name that a rupture isn't just a conflict, it's also any form of disconnection Mm -hmm. due to unavailability. So that include things getting out of a partner's control or like growing apart. Uh, And I think what you were naming in terms of what's needed for really good repair is really important. It's not just an apology. It goes beyond an apology, right? There's validation, there's acknowledging impact, there's making a plan for doing something differently, Mm -hmm. Right.
1: That last one, I think, so often gets left out of the conversations, right? Because if we get an apology, and even if they really empathize and validate really well, we feel heard, that's good. But if we don't have any sense that anything will be different in the future, it's very hard for us to reconnect and feel safe.
0: Of course. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Because there's the, your system doesn't have any evidence that it's going to be different.
1: Right. It's like, well, it's like why the, would I expect anything different? <laughs> right.
0: The danger is still present in some yeah. ways. Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, with secure functioning couples, Stan Taken talks about how they're really able to diffuse conflict uh, so that neither person stays in a heightened state, stress state for extended periods of time. Mm-hmm. Because then your system just starts to associate the other person with threat.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yep. Repair is where it's at, y'all. I think that uh, 12-step groups do this well. They talk about amends, making Mm -hmm. amends, and and they really emphasize an amends is not an apology, that they're not the same, Mm -hmm. right? It may include an apology. It also may not, actually. Mm -hmm. Uh, Repairing something, sometimes we do that without even speaking to the other person, just by changing our behaviors. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, so that's, I think, probably one of the most important skills that we can develop uh, to be a part of a secure functioning relationship. I think one of the other ones that comes to mind for me is really important is developing our own capacity to make a distinction between what's happening and what is our projection or what is our old stuff, what is our story about what's happening. And often it helps to have the support of a good therapist or coach or friend or someone who can be in your corner to help you because it can be hard to tell, especially Mm -hmm. with these kinds of... Uh, implicit memory or implicit associations that go beyond our our language centers, our, our kind of conscious level thinking, it can be hard to tell sometimes. Is this in my head or is this what's actually happening? But the more that we practice making that distinction and understanding, even to understand, not everything I think is real, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes even that can be an important like, oh, I don't have to believe. Every thought I have right, is huge. We lean into that.
0: Totally. Yeah, and with secure attachment, that's associated with something called mentalizing, which is what you're describing. So mm-hmm. the capacity to not be embedded in an experience or kind of fused with it as though it's truth, but rather to feel about our thinking mm-hmm. and think about our feeling, mm-hmm. right? We're able, we have enough observing ego to step step away internally from what's happening and kind of see more of what's happening.
1: I love that. Mm-hmm. I, and I, I, I like what you said about thinking about our feeling and feeling about our thinking mm-hmm. because oftentimes thinking about what we're feeling helps us give words to or make sense of our experience rather than just, well, I just feel angry right now. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, let me give some shape and context to why do I feel angry? What's coming up? What is this related to, you know, both in the present and potentially in the past?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And I have one thing we'll go over in a little bit around um, that process of essentially developing a a coherent Mm self-narrative, which is what you're pointing to and is like one of the foundations of secure attachment. Mm -hmm. Um, I have one other secure functioning kind of skill, but I'm wondering if there's more on your list. No, go for it. Okay. One other one that I think is key is learning effective communication skills. Yeah. Right. So in insecure attachment, the tendency because of the, the fear uh, experience, because of assuming that others can't be there for us in the way that we need, is to communicate indirectly. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if I'm, example of this might be I'm feeling really anxious. Instead of saying, I, I feel you pulling away, maybe I um, become critical or demanding or um, start saying, Well, you never take me out anymore. Right, mm-hmm. or if I'm more avoidant and I'm starting to feel a little bit overwhelmed, instead of telling you that, I might disappear mm-hmm. for a few days. Right. Yep. Uh, so with secure attachment, we need to learn communicating directly, assertively yet kindly, uh, instead of avoiding communication altogether or communicating via what are called protest behaviors. Mm-hmm. Okay, things like refusing to return a text because you're angry that you think they pulled away. Mm -hmm. Um, So in particular, I think it's really important to learn how to express needs for closeness, distance, or attachment reassurance directly. So let me give you an example. Instead of disappearing for a few days, you might say, I'm noticing I'm feeling really overwhelmed and I need some alone time in order to be fully present with you. I would love to reach out tomorrow to schedule another time. Would that work for you?
1: That's great. That's very clear. And even in doing that, you're demonstrating staying connected while taking care of what you need. Right. And that mutuality that we were talking about earlier, right? I know that you have a need for being connected and knowing that I'm not disappearing. And I have a need for uh, having some alone time to help process my overwhelm and kind of let my system regulate a little bit. Right. We're naming both and making sure that we can both find a way to get our needs met.
0: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, another example might be instead of texting a few times in a row uh, and then, like I mentioned earlier, kind of refusing to text back if if they don't respond, right? That kind of protest behavior. Instead saying, I'm noticing I'm feeling very anxious because I haven't heard from you. I could really use some connection and reassurance. Mm -hmm. Are you available to have a phone call later? Mm
1: -hmm. Beautiful. Well, I think we probably could spend... Another several hours going into more skills that you could use to be a part of a secure sure. functioning relationship. Uh, so maybe we'll leave it there for now uh, and, and keep going. But even I think having this lens of what are the skills you need yes. to be a part of a secure functioning relationship, things we talked about and, and beyond, you can start looking for what are these things and where are the places that I could practice some of these in my friendships, in my romantic relationships, in my dating, in my whatever relationships in your life you see opportunities for practicing some of these skill sets.
0: Right. Well, shall we loop back around to that piece I was naming of developing a coherent self-narrative? Let's do it. Okay. So that's kind of fancy talk for um, being able to name how your past has influenced who you are today and how you're showing up in relationship, okay? And so the reason this is important is there's a lot of solid research that shows that secure attachment is associated with that capacity to tell the story of why you are who you are today. Mm -hmm. Um, So let's just go a little bit back into... Uh, the attachment history annals. There was a woman named Mary Main in the 80s who developed something called the Adult Attachment Interview, which is a form of attachment priming and used to kind of assess people's attachment styles, Mm -hmm. okay? And um, the AAI, it's an interview that asks uh, questions like, which parent did you feel closer to and why? Did you ever feel rejected as a child? When you were upset as a child, what did you do? And then what would happen, okay? Okay. So all of this evokes the person's internal experiences or beliefs about attachment, Mm -hmm. right? What was really fascinating about this is that they found that by interviewing an adult using this tool, they could predict with startling accuracy the attachment style of that interviewee's unborn child. Wow. So later when they had a child, they would actually test that child and it would match wow. with startling accuracy.
1: That's amazing. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Um,
0: and what's even more interesting to me about this tool is what predicted the unborn child's attachment style was not the content of the interviewee's answers, it's not what they said, it's how they said it. Mm-hmm how they engaged in the interview mm-hmm. and with the content. Mm-hmm. So those who were securely attached were able to answer questions in a way that was coherent, collaborative, consistent, and showed um, a valuing of relationships, both in the way they re- treated the interviewer, but also in terms of some of the, the um, things that they were saying. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they showed a balance of emotion and objectivity that thinking about feeling and feeling about thinking that we were talking about earlier. Mm. So the point of all of this, I think, is that it doesn't actually matter as much what you've gone through, whether you've had attachment wounds. It matters whether you've made sense of that in a way that's allowed you to integrate it such that any attachment trauma is not driving your nervous system anymore. Mm -hmm. Your adult self is able to make sense of all of it. Yeah. So... All of that is just to say, to develop more secure attachment, we need to go into our experiences and learn to put words to them, learn to feel what happened. Uh, I think this is why therapy is so powerful in some ways because that's part of what we're doing. We're, mm-hmm. we're connecting the dots, but in an environment where hopefully we're safe to not just think through things but also feel, feel through things, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That said, you know, not everybody has access to therapy that's not the only way to develop that self-narrative. There's also self-help practices like journaling, meditation, 12-step recovery, um, making art, etc.
1: Mm-hmm. I was listening to a wonderful interview with Bessel van der Kolk recently and he was talking about the way that healing trauma is very much about creating a coherent self-narrative and that oftentimes one of the very painful things about trauma not only is the event itself, but the way it disconnects us from our community, our loved ones, our family. And our brain almost has to create this, this disjointed, incoherent narrative of self. And that part of the, the process, as you're talking about, is this integration. I imagine that with insecure early attachment injuries... It's a similar thing, right? It's a form of trauma that we have to heal. Yes. uh, That through creating this coherent narrative, uh, understanding our experience, making sense of it and uh, understanding how it impacts us today.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think there's some evidence showing that um, uh, attachment wounding is you know, what might be referred to more as developmental trauma versus big T incidental trauma, things like war or um, say a natural disaster, developmental trauma that can actually be harder to treat. It can actually have a more lasting impact on the system. Mm Um, And so I think you're right on, it is a form of trauma. Uh, And so developing that coherent self-narrative is really important. This also connects to one other point I wanted to bring up, which is befriending your nervous system is a big part of healing uh, attachment wounds. And so in trauma, what happens is we lose the capacity to regulate our nervous system. Bessel van der Kolk, actually, uh, one thing that he has said is trauma comes back as a reaction, not a memory, Mm-hmm. And I think that's especially true for attachment, especially early attachment, uh, right? So these attachment styles, they're kind of just these trauma memories, these webs of of neural wiring that get activated in certain situations. Right. And we don't always realize that they are trauma reactions based on the past because we don't have a memory, mm-hmm. we just have the reaction. Yeah, uh, And so... This is where really getting to know your nervous system, learning how to detect when it is dysregulated and also learning tools for self-regulation but also co-regulation is a really important part of developing secure attachment. So in terms of befriending your nervous system, I really love polyvagal theory Mm -hmm. uh, and we won't go into depth about that. Another episode probably is coming about that at some point, but I can point you to Deb Dana's audio program, Befriending Your Nervous System. That's a really wonderful way to learn how to track where your nervous system is and how to care for yourself in different states. Again, working with a therapist is great if you have access to that, particularly someone who understands how, how to support a traumatized nervous system. Generally, um, you know, part of what Bessel van der Kolk's work points to is that trauma is in the body more yeah. than it is in conscious thought. Mm-hmm. And so working with somebody who can work with the body which means they probably would do more than just talk about what has happened to you. They might do something like EMDR or a somatic body-based therapy. Our team, we have people who do both of those. Also drama therapy, which incorporates the body. Um, So really just looking for somebody who does a little bit more than talk therapy and is Mm trauma-informed can be really helpful for that. Yep, brilliant. Mm -hmm. All right, so number five is practice Mindfulness. 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 I'm sure you haven't uh, heard this what recommendation is this thing? before. What's, what is
1: this mindfulness thing?
0: <laughs> we are in a mindfulness revolution. <laughs> so you have heard of this, dear listener. I will not bore you with the basics. I will share with you that studies do indicate that mindfulness is negatively correlated with attachment anxiety and attachment avoidance. So in other words, people who show more fears of abandonment or closeness tend to be less mindful overall.
1: Got it. Does the reverse correlation also occur that people who demonstrate more mindfulness show less anxiety and...
0: I didn't find that exact link in the research. I I think what I found is that more research is needed to establish a causal relationship between mindfulness and secure Mm -hmm. attachment. Got it. That said, mindfulness strengthens the prefrontal cortex, which in turn helps with the following. Okay, I'm going to read you a list. I want you to also hear this through the lens of attachment. Okay. Okay, so mindfulness uh, strengthens the following capacities. Body regulation, attuned communication.
1: Okay, those um, are both important for... How we connect with another human.
0: Very good. Emotional balance. Yep. Response flexibility.
1: Response flexibility. Like, yes. what does that mean?
0: Means like if I experience something, uh, I have more than one option in terms of my response.
1: Mm, got it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, fear modulation. Okay. Empathy.
1: So we could turn our fear up with our mindfulness. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I tease, but that's true.
0: That's true, yeah. yeah. Uh, a healed nervous system isn't a nervous system that's never afraid. It's a flexible nervous system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fear is sometimes really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, empathy, mm-hmm. insight, mm-hmm. moral awareness, and intuition.
1: Okay, sounds like a list of <clears throat> skills that would be helpful for a secure functioning relationship. It does
0: indeed. <laughs> <laughs> So even though the research doesn't say mindfulness equals developing secure attachment, it says it equals all of the things that I think are pretty clearly attached. Mm-hmm. Attached. Securely attached <laughs> to secure <So> attachment. Okay. <laughs> also, you know, there's just so much positive research about mindfulness. It's It kind of comes back to like, it's good for you, do mm. it. Mm-hmm. You know, like even if it doesn't, you know, we don't have proof that it develops secure attachment, Mm -hmm. it's a good idea. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, Are there specific kinds of mindfulness that we might point to here? Because obviously that's a a broad word that is, I would even go so far as to say probably overused at this point uh, in general society. And I, I would imagine that certain interpretations or certain practices there are maybe more linked to some of these outcomes than others. Is that true?
0: Yeah, this is a great question. So, mindfulness is different from meditation, mm-hmm. right? There's a lot of things that we can use in order to uh, cultivate the capacity to be uh, present in this moment with what is. Okay.
1: Yeah, and maybe we just pause on that for a second. I think that's a wonderful definition of of mindfulness for our purposes, right? To be present in this moment with what is. Mm-hmm. Right? Is that is that fair? Yes. Uh, that is sounds simple, but is profound,
0: hella hard,
1: hella hard, <laughs> and, you know, it's like, okay, great. In in some moments, like, yeah, this is, this is easy. I'm present with what's so. And in some moments it's like, no, mm-hmm. it takes, takes everything we've got. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, okay. I didn't mean to not, please keep going.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I how do I answer your question? I mean, I think whatever your mindfulness practice is, whether that's meditation or qigong or art or breath work, or I don't know what else, cooking, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what you said a moment ago about how literally anything can be a mindfulness practice. Literally, literally yes, I just heard myself. anything. Parks and Rec, <laughs> what's his name? <laughs> oh, man. Chris? Chris Traeger. Chris
0: Traeger. yeah. Literally. <laughs> literally anything.
1: Uh, anything can be a mindfulness practice, right? I, I mean, some of the mindfulness practices that I've really enjoyed, mindful eating. Yes. And what a fun... Thing to sit there and savor your chocolate croissant, Mm -hmm. right? Or whatever you're eating. Uh, Your tempeh. Your tempeh, (laughs) your meat. (laughs) Mindful walking, right? Yeah. Mindful just sitting and watching the birds. Right. Um, All of these practices, you know, in that sense, we can literally take anything in our daily life And have it be a mindfulness practice if we want it to be.
0: Right. Absolutely. It doesn't
1: have to be. I don't want people to get like neurotic about it. I I hear it in my head because that's what I would do sometimes. You don't need to do that, but you have the opportunity to say, okay, I want to practice mindful driving while I'm driving. I'm not going to listen to things. I'm just going to drive mindfully to my destination.
0: Yes. Yeah, and you can do uh, relational meditations. Mm -hmm. There are relational mindfulness practices. We did one of those before this episode. We Mm -hmm. sat and uh, just noticed small changes on one another's face. Um, And so you can also, you know, utilize these mindfulness practices in relationship Mm -hmm. if you're kind of worried about using it as an avoidance tactic. Mm -hmm. In terms of resources for mindfulness, my favorites are Headspace, it's a great meditation app. And the Center for Mindful Self Compassion has a lot of wonderful resources, including a lot of free meditations. Uh, mindful Self Compassion, in my mind, is a secure attachment priming practice. Mm-hmm. You are practicing relating to yourself as a compassionate, loving, uh, secure base, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I highly recommend that uh, for building secure attachment. Mm-hmm.
1: Also, shout out to Thich Han, mm-hmm. a wonderful, prolific Buddhist monk author. He's got a, a lot of stuff. He, you know, he's written, I don't know how many books, um, yes. but a lot of wonderful resources about mindfulness in from a Buddhist perspective mm-hmm. uh, and how to bring that into daily life in, in all kinds of different ways. Yes. Beautiful. That wraps up our two-part series on how to develop secure attachment. You can find the show notes with links to all the resources we mentioned in this episode at relationshipcenter.com slash podcast. And if you love today's show, go to relationshipcenter.com slash newsletter. We'll send you a short hella helpful email once a month with informative articles, silly videos, behind the scenes glimpses, book recs, and more. Again, that's relationshipcenter.com slash newsletter. Until next time. We we love love you you too. too. Bye. Bye.